invite you now to turn to Hosea chapter 12. If you have the Pew Bible, it is on page 758. Hosea 12, beginning in verse 2, reading through the end of the book. Again, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him, and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. 
For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where, are, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall, bring, shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all our iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as we have acknowledged for many of the past several weeks, this is some heavy stuff, and there's a lot here. God, we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment. Let us be those who understand the things that you tell us. Let us be those who know you, who walk in your ways. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. This morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we are wrapping up the book of Hosea this morning, or now this afternoon, I guess. Uh, and it has been a pretty fast study through Hosea. We've done it in six weeks. Uh, the next six months, we're going to be going through the rest of the minor prophets, 10 of the 11 minor prophets, since we already went through Jonah this summer. And this might feel a little bit like a weird place to be during Advent and Christmas season, but I think it's actually quite fitting. As we've already mentioned this morning, the primary focus of Advent is the longing and anticipation for Jesus' return. And that's because sin and death provide constant reminders that we are not home yet. It was the same thing that the people of Israel faced at the time of Jesus' birth. 
They were longing for salvation. Longing for salvation from the Romans. But just like the people of old, they were looking in the wrong place. They were looking for a political ruler, political salvation. What about us today? Where are we looking for salvation? And what are we putting our hope today? This is the season of false hopes and false promises, isn't it? Black Friday, small business Saturday. I don't know when that started. Just heard that this year. I don't think there's like a Sunday sale thing, thankfully, maybe. But that's coming, I guarantee it. Cyber Monday. And then so we can feel good about how much money we spent and how self-focused we were the last four days. We have Giving Tuesday, right? We can pat ourselves on the back. We have false promises from 24-7 in our face ads about how much we need this thing or that thing. And it's easy to sit here and say, oh, man, like, it's gotten so bad. But this is nothing new. It's not as if today's advertisers have discovered some secret that, not, has not, that hasn't been obvious for all of human history. We are all idolaters. We all look for God replacements. We have all played the whore, as this graphic imagery in Hosea has reminded us. It opened with this dramatic scene in chapters 1 to 3 of Hosea and Gomer, this symbolic marriage of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. There were three children born. There were symbolic names given to the children, two of them called No Mercy and Not My People. We've walked through the devastating chapters, chapters 4 through 10 of Israel's idolatry and their whoredom. Last week, finally, in chapter 11, there was a little bit of a bright spot. Chapter 4 through 10, the, the imagery was on the unfaithful bride. And then in chapter 11, it kind of shifted to the Lord as, as a loving and compassionate father to a wayward child who was bent on turning away. Chris walked us through that in chapter 11 and reminded us that, uh, that that word bent on turning away means addicted to. We are addicted to turning away from God. And it's this image of, of children who go away. And if we had to choose one word to summarize Hosea, I think a good word would be return. Chapter 3 ended with a promise of a future return of Israel to the Lord in the latter days. Chapter 6 began with a plea for Hosea's audience to return to the Lord. That though God had torn them, he would heal them and he would revive them and he would raise them up. Now here, this imagery of a father calling to their wayward child that we saw in chapter 11, this continues until the end of the book. We see the father's heart for his children in these chapters as he pleads with them to return to him. We're going to have a key word for each chapter, chapters 12 through 14, that are all pretty intertwined with this idea of returning. And you see it there in your worship guide in the sermon title, Recognize, Remember, and return. And these are all very intertwined. We're going to see three things that we are called to do. If you're taking notes, these three things are kind of going to be what we're going to be looking at. First, we must recognize who we are in the Lord. From chapter 12, we must recognize who we are in the Lord. Second, we must remember the Lord. 
chapter 13. We must remember the Lord. And the third thing, we must return to the Lord. In chapter 14, we must return to the Lord. So let's dive into chapter 12, beginning in verse 2, as we look at that we must recognize who we are in the Lord. This first line here, it says, the Lord has an indictment against Judah. Same word that was used in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, the Lord has a controversy against the inhabitants of the land. Don't know why the ESV chose to translate it in two different ways, but it's the same word, indictment and controversy. It's this kind of idea of this, of this lawsuit, of this accusation that the Lord has against his people. We've been going through Hosea. Mostly it's been focused on Israel in the northern kingdom, but here Hosea includes Judah to remind both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah that God is not pleased with them. Look at the second line there in verse 2. It says that he will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. When it says Jacob here, this is not speaking about the individual Jacob. It's speaking about the, the people. Jacob is the representative of the people. And when it says he will repay him here, this is the same word that is used for the word return or to turn. So God is going to turn back on them. He's going to pay them for their deeds. We see it here in verse 2 for Judah. Look at verse the end of verse 14, speaking of Ephraim. This is speaking of the people of Israel in the northern kingdom. It says, that God will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. So nobody is off the hook here. Judah in the south, Israel in the north, they're all guilty. God will repay all of them for their deeds. And we see the consequences for their actions, that they will reap what they have sown. This is another big emphasis that we've seen since chapter four of this idea of reaping and sowing. Now, what happens here, he, Hosea points to Jacob, and he talks in verses 3 and 4 of, of what their forefather Jacob did. He reminds them of Jacob grabbing the heel of Esau in the womb and then of wrestling with God as an adult. Uh, both of these things are probably meant to be understood in a negative light, uh, meaning that the people of Hosea's time, they are just like their forefather Jacob. They are deceitful and they are self-serving. But despite Jacob's sins and theirs, God met with Jacob. Look at the middle of second half of verse 4. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke to us. This us here is important because Jacob, again, is the, represent, the representative of Israel. He could have just said, there God spoke with him. But he said, there God spoke with us. What God did through Jacob symbolically applied to all of the people. Verse 5, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. There's a connection here. We're going to be looking at this idea of remembering. Uh, the, word, the root word for this word memorial is the same Hebrew word for remember. So the Lord's memorial name is the name that the Lord is to be remembered by. We're going to look a little bit later about telling, telling people not to forget the Lord. So we need to remember his name. And then we see this great plea in verse 6. It says, so you, people of Israel, so you, by the help of your God, 
return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. This is where the recognizing who we are in the Lord peace plays itself out. So you, Israel, just like your father Jacob, who had to have his hip put out of joint after an all-night wrestling match, by the help of your God, because you cannot do it on your own, because you are weak and helpless by yourself, by the help of your God, return. Come back to your God. Leave your idolatrous ways. Leave your straying ways. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for God. One commentator says, a return to a true relationship with the Lord was not to be some passing outburst of religious enthusiasm, but an ongoing dependence on him and an uninterrupted acceptance of his timeline. Part of recognizing who we are in the Lord is looking back to where we've come from, not relying on some previous burst of religious enthusiasm, because that will not last. Think about the history of revivals and awakenings, right? All these great stories of people turning to Christ, and then after some time, they go to follow up, and where is everybody, right? These are these these bursts of, of religious enthusiasm. Not that that's all bad, but that can't be relied upon for the long haul. Those things don't last. We are to remember God's faithfulness to us, both individually and corporate. We, corporately, we are to look forward, and we are to continually wait for our God. This is a great reminder for us at the beginning of Advent. We do look back. We look back to the first coming of Christ. We remember what he has done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. But we also look forward with great hope and great expectation to his return, to his second coming. If you are a Christian here today, my encouragement to you is to recognize who you are. Recognize what God has done for you. Fill your heart and your mind with the truth of God and not with the lies of the world. Be in the word so you can remember your identity in Christ. Worship God like we are here together today as we seek to return to him. This is a constant practice for us of faith and repentance. Turning towards Christ and turning away from our sin. And then we wait continually, which can be the hardest thing when life in this world gets difficult. It can be hard to continually wait, to say, how long, how long, oh Lord, until you come, until you make things right. We do cry out with the psalmist. And though the waiting can be excruciating, we have been given the promise of his return. The second to last verse in the entire Bible, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. That is the promise that he has given us. That is what we have to look forward to. So we wait in joyful hope. And a big part of that waiting is remembering. So we see in chapter 13, we must remember the Lord. We see here in chapter 13, an emphasis on outward idolatry and inward idolatry. Now, it's easy to read the Old Testament and to mischaracterize God's warnings against idolatry as purely outward issues, like not building idols and bowing down to these 
statues of gold. Clearly, that was a massive problem in Israel. It's one that Hosea has been relentlessly confronting. Verses 1 to 3 here in chapter 13, we see the outward sins and we see their consequences. Verse 2, they, they sin more and more. They make for themselves metal images. They make idols from silver. Verse 3, they shall, here's the consequences of their idolatry. They shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. These four things, all things that, that vanish and, and fade very quickly. That's the, that's the results, the consequences for Israel because of their sin, because of this outward idolatry. But the problem runs so much deeper than just these outward sins, right? Just making idols out of silver, these craftsmen making things, people bowing down to them. It's more than just that. And this is where we need to sit up and pay attention as well. We need to allow the Lord to confront our inward idolatry. And we get a pretty clear picture of that here in verses 4 through 6. God reminds Israel that there is no other God and no other saviors. That he knew them all along, even in the wilderness and in the land of drought. Verse 5, it was I who knew you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. Then verse 6, but when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. This is a direct reference to Deuteronomy chapter 8. You can turn there if you want to. I'm going to be reading a, a chunk from there. It's on page 152 if you have the Pew Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 8, the heading of the chapter is, Remember the Lord your God. Just before the people are going into the promised land, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God reminds them of how he had graciously provided for them. And then look with me at beginning in verse 11 and see the parallel with Hosea 13.6. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. That's what it said in Hosea 13.6. They will be filled and their heart was lifted up. Your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground when there was no, where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. So he's pointing back to all these things that God had done and telling them to remember, right? To remember God's faithfulness. And he points forward here, beware, lest you say in your heart, verse 17, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and, my, and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gave you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, which is what is happening here in Hosea, right? If you do those things, I solemnly warn you today 
that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. These warnings, as we've already mentioned, these warnings for God's people here are not something new. These things were laid out many years ago for the people as they were coming out of Egypt. They were written down in in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. Notice again that it is not the external idolatry of carved images here. This is the inward idolatry of the heart that is proud and lifted up. The heart that forgets God and attributes our own success to the things that we have accomplished with our own hands. We live today in such a success-driven culture where we are constantly urged to be our authentic selves and to be proud of who we are and what we have done. This is the very recipe for disaster that God's people were warned against in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that they were still wrestling with almost 700 years later in the days of Hosea, and that we no doubt still are challenged with to this very day. This is why we so desperately need the full testimony of Scripture, that we might remember the Lord. 75% of our Bible is the Old Testament history of the people of Israel. We can't just ignore it and say, oh, that's, that's Old Testament, that's Old Covenant stuff, right? We don't need that. It's a reminder of their continual struggle to trust in their own strength and their own wisdom. To trust in their own kings. We see that in verses 10 and 11 here of Hosea 13. We see over and over God's gracious calling of his people back to himself with many promises of future deliverance. Look with me at, verses, at verse 14 here. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Death does not get the final word. Paul quotes this in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read in our New Testament reading. Jesus has conquered sin and death for us. Death has no victory and no sting if you are in Christ. Death has been swallowed up in victory. There were glimpses of this reality in the 75% of our Bible found in the Old Testament. And the 25% of our Bible that is in the New Testament is the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises. It reveals fully and finally to us everything that we need to know in order to be saved from our sin and to have assurance of forgiveness and eternal life. We need to be a people of the word so that we can remember who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. As hard as it can be to sit here for weeks and months in the minor prophets, we must see how this is all pointing us forward to the glorious hope of the gospel of Christ. And we must respond accordingly. Just like our waiting is to be a continual thing, so is our returning. Lastly, chapter 14, we must return to the Lord. I said earlier that return is a good kind of key word, a good theme in Hosea. It's really kind of the theme of all of the prophets. Return to the Lord. Seen so profoundly in Hosea's pursuit of Gomer in chapter 3, 
and going and finding her and buying her back, bringing her back home and reminding her that she belongs to him, telling her to no longer go out, to no longer play the whore. That is what God has done for us in Christ. We were Gomer. We were the wandering, unfaithful spouse spouse who Jesus, Jesus purchased and returned home. But we must all admit that we are still prone to wander. Our return to God was not just a one-time thing. It's a continual process. It's a continual battle, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, to not live according to the flesh, but to walk in the Spirit and to bear fruit in the power of the Spirit. In this chapter, we're going to see three specific things. We're going to see the posture of returning, the promise for returners, and then a final exhortation. The posture for returning is seen in verses 1 to 3. God tells Israel to return. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And don't return, he tells them, don't just return with actions, but with words. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all our iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vow, the vows of our lips. There is no turning to God. There is no true confession if there are not words. There is no set act of penance that will clear a guilty conscience. You can't just drop money in an offering box or do any number of good deeds to clear your guilty conscience. Our returning to God must be accompanied by words. Look at the words here in verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. And you, the orphan, finds mercy. It's interesting that these words that they say include words that they will no longer say, right? We've been saying our God to the work of our hands, and we're no longer going to say that. We're coming to God with words of repentance. We're coming to God and saying, God, we will no longer say the things that we once said. We will say true words to you. This is an acknowledgement by the people of God that the false hopes to which they had turned are really no hope at all. Assyria shall not save us there, which we saw in the last several chapters. There, there had been this reliance on other nations, especially Assyria. Our horses won't save us. The works of our hands won't save us. And this phrase, in you, the orphan finds mercy, is very fitting. Remember back to chapter 1? God told Hosea to name their second child, No Mercy. And after all of the judgments that were promised in chapter 2, the Lord said, I will have mercy on No Mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This is the great picture of returning, of an orphaned child being given a home. In this case, Israel was not orphaned because they were abandoned by God, but because they had run away from him. 
This is the picture of the prodigal son in Luke 15. We read this for our New Testament reading last week. After running away from home and squandering his inheritance, the son, the younger son, he recognizes what he had done. He comes to his senses and he returns home to his father. He recognizes that he deserves to be treated like a servant. He confesses his sins. He uses meaningful words when he confesses to his father. And his father sees him coming. He goes to meet him. He shows compassion. He runs. He embraces him. He kisses him. He throws a party for the son who had been lost and is now home. This is the story of all of us. Whether we've come home or whether we are still wandering and have yet to return to God. Now I want to address three types of people among us today. The first is the children of believing parents. Now I'm mostly addressing those in our midst here, uh, but it also may, you may be an older person now who grew up in a faithful Christian household and you were the child and are the child of believing parents. Uh, so this, this applies to you, but I'm mostly speaking to the kids here today. Kids, you don't need to go off and run off and do a bunch of crazy sins. You don't need to be like the prodigal son to know God's love and mercy. You don't need to test the waters and see, well, what is it like, right? Maybe, maybe my parents lived that crazy life, and I just want to see what it's like, right? I want to see what it's like to test the waters in the world. God has placed you in a home where you have been taught about him from an early age. One thing that we pray for you always is we pray that you will never know a day apart from Jesus. This doesn't mean that your life won't be hard. It doesn't mean that you won't struggle with sin. But it also doesn't mean that you don't need to return to the Lord. You do. Continually. Just like your parents do. We've been doing membership interviews. We started last week with the kids who have gone through the communicants class, and it's been great to hear them speak of their trust in God, the faithfulness of God towards them from a young age. I would encourage us all to be praying for them. We have interviews over the next uh, couple weeks for kids who are going to be uh, becoming communicant members and, and able to then take communion. It's been, again, a great encouragement. So continue to pray for these kids as they seek to, to grow. Uh, and to acknowledge uh, God in their lives and to, to profess their faith in Christ. So that's the first group. Second group is the person who did not grow up as a Christian or who is not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a, in a church, like a church home, like you went to church, but your parents weren't walking with the Lord. It was just going through the motions. That was my story. I uh, grew up going to church, but did not know the Lord, did not know the gospel. Maybe you have... Uh, that, that's you. You've seen a reversal in your life of once living for yourself, once living for your own desires, but now living for God and living for his glory. This is depicted here in verses four through seven, which is the promise for returners. God says, I will heal their apostasy. This word for apostasy here uh, has the same root word as the word for return. So it's saying, I will heal those who have turned away from me. The apostasy is the turning away. So in this chapter, this 
This word return is used a whole bunch of times. And, and here's this picture of those who have turned away. God says, I will heal them. I will restore them. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. God's anger turns away and his, his love and his healing and his compassion, he, in, in his compassion and love, he turns toward us. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. If you remember from chapter 13, we saw uh, in verse 3, the morning mist, the dew that goes away early, the chaff, the smoke, those are things that, that went away. There's a picture of that dew that's, that's gone quickly. Now here, the Lord kind of reverses that imagery. He says, he will be like the dew to Israel. He will be this, this, watering, uh, this watering force uh, for them so that they will flourish. The imagery here is very similar to the imagery in Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17 of the tree that is deeply rooted, the tree that is planted and grows and, and God waters it. Verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. Again, this picture of returning to the Lord. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. This is a reversal of the curses on the crops that had been listed in the previous chapters. Instead of drought, instead of dryness, there is now this flourishing. If you are a Christian today, rejoice that God has healed you, that God has loved you, that God has turned his anger away from you, and that he placed it on his son at the cross. Rejoice that he has called you to live for him. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, as Martin Luther so famously wrote in that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. So this is a call to wisdom, as we see in verse 9, the last verse in this great book. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This is the great exhortation that ends this book. If we are wise and discerning, if we are redeemed of the Lord and led by his spirit, let us understand and know these things and let us walk in them. And third and finally, I want to address the person who has not yet turned to the Lord. The person who is still living for their own kingdom. The warnings throughout the book of Hosea are not empty words that only applied to an ancient nation. The threats of death and destruction are spiritual realities for all of those who do not understand and know the Lord and walk in his ways. You will stumble in the ways of God as a transgressor, as it says in the last line of Hosea. I'm here to plead with you not to continue to walk in rebellion against God. Turn to him in faith and turn away from your sins in repentance. Believe the good news. Believe what God has done for you in Christ, dying on the cross in your place that you might live. 
Receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. And may we all, with joyful hope, await the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.